It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome, welcome to Money for Lunch, you guys. It's good to have you here, my friends. I'm excited. Um, just want to give a couple of shout, shout outs to uh, some recent um, members, if you will. Paul C. Uh, went to dominatingyourmind.com and got uh, my latest book, Dominating Your Mind, for free. Uh, you pay some shipping and some handling. Or if you want, you can go to amazon.com and you can pay 20 bucks for shipping and handling. Or you can just get the book for free, whichever you want. Anyway, Paul C., thank you so much. Um, Earl S., thank you so much. I appreciate it very, very much. And Cameron C., thank you so very much. So um, it's uh, it's a book that took me about a year or so, maybe almost two years to put together. And it uh, it's really about reprogramming or training your mind. It's so important. We are bombarded by literally tens of thousands of negative ideas and thoughts. Most of us, most of them coming from us. And anyway, so if you want to uh, crush your fears, destroy your doubts, and feel unstoppable, check out the book, dominatingyourmind.com. All right, that's my plug for the day. Um, All right, I was sent this quote, um, and uh, I want to uh, get get it started. So if you have a quote that you would like for us to read on the air, just send it to me. I'm on all the social medias. And uh, that's probably the, one of the best ways to get out to me. Or you can just email me, Bert, at BertMartinez.com. If we pick your quote, you get some swag. Plus, you get, it, you get uh, to get to hear it on the air. So uh, this is from Madison. Madison, thank you so much. Here's the quote. Welcome those big, sticky, complicated problems. In them are your most powerful opportunities. And that is by Ralph Marston. Welcome those big, sticky, complicated problems. In them are the most powerful opportunities. What a powerful quote by Ralph Marston. Madison, thank you so much for helping us out here on Money for Lunch. On the show today, we have Corey Phelps. Corey Phelps is a professor of strategy and associate dean of executive education at McGill University for over 20 years. He has led award-winning research on corporate growth and traveled the world as a keynote speaker, corporate trainer, and consultant, helping organizations become more innovative and strategically agile. He is the co-author of Cracked It, How to Solve Big Problems and Sell Solutions Like Top Strategy Consultants. Corey Phelps, welcome to Money for Lunch. Thanks very much, Bert. I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to chatting. You bet. You bet. And uh, for you guys, um, who are familiar with Montreal. He is, uh, Corey is currently in Montreal and we were just talking right before the show started about uh, how wonderful the weather is finally after a very long, long winter, right? You have to wait for the weather to, to, to turn nice here, but when it does, it's beautiful. Absolutely. All right. So just in case uh, I want to give this out, uh, we're going to be talking about um, crack, Cracked It, how to solve big problems and sell solutions like top strategy consultants. 
And if you want to find out more, you can go to cracked-it-book.com. And uh, so we're going to be mentioning that a couple of times. So off, off the top here, I got to ask you, Corey, because I asked this of all my authors, why did you write the book? What was the inspiration behind this? Well, the inspiration really came from our MBA students when I was a professor at HEC Paris in France. So before I came to McGill, I was I was there, and we and this was probably eight nine years ago. We had a group of MBA students saying, "We really want to get jobs in the world of strategy consultants. We want to work for McKinsey, we want to work for Bain or Boston Consulting Group." And when they looked at the program that they were in, they said, "You, in terms of faculty members, you do a great job of teaching us tools and frameworks on how to make business decisions on solving complex problems. What you don't teach us is you don't teach us a methodology to bring all these tools and frameworks to life. You don't give us much structure on how to solve complex problems. And they were saying this because that's really what strategy consultants do. They are hired to the quote that you you started off the show with to, to handle organizations' big, sticky, complex problems. So the inspiration was trying to put together uh, a course, a short course for our MBA students, and that eventually led into the inspiration for the book. And what we do in the book is we try to bring to life a toolkit, a methodology that's used by the top strategy consulting firms in the world in solving these big, thorny, complex organizational problems, but make it available to everyone, not just the elite world of strategy consultants. Gotcha. No, I like that. You know, and it's, it's interesting that your students can't, you know, started asking you for this stuff because it's so true. So many people go to college and they graduate with a degree, but unless they are fortunate to be picked up immediately, they are sometimes left without some basic tools to do what they got a degree in. Absolutely. All right, so let me ask you this. Um, who is this book for? Who should, who should be picking up this book? Well, as I said, we originally wrote it for people that were business school students, but uh, as we got into the book more and more, we realized that it's really available, it's really useful for anyone that works in an organization that at some point might find themselves trying to tackle a complex, sticky problem. These could be entrepreneurs and startup firms. These could be people working in large organizations that are for-profit, that are governmental agencies, that are non-profit. But let's face it, every organization faces complex problems and as a result needs people that know how to tackle these problems. So the book is really written for all of those people out there that at some point are going to face these big sticky problems and try to figure out how to solve them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so let me ask you, let's dive into this a little bit. Sure. When it comes to problem, uh, solving big problems, what trips people up when they solve or trying to solve challenging organizational problems? What do you see as some of the common things that trips people up? Some of the common pitfalls. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing to point out because what these pitfalls tell us is as human beings, solving complex problems doesn't come naturally. Uh, in other words, we're, we're, we are human. We have biases, and one of the biases we have when we solve problems is we spend very little time, if any, stopping to understand and define what the problem is we're actually solving. And what this often results in is a very poor definition of the problem. And, and it makes sense because as human beings, 
what's what's funner? It's it's more fun to talk about our ideas for solutions and to see who has the best idea than it is to spend some time thinking about do we really understand what the problem is? So mm. part of the the challenge of being human beings is that we skip over the step of defining problems and rush right into uh, figuring out what the solution might be. A second thing that's related to that is we often zero in very, very quickly on our favorite solution. And as a result of that, we fall in love with that solution. And when somebody comes along and questions its value or its utility, what we often do is we often try to ignore that or we try to discredit it. And that is known as the confirmation bias. We fall in love with our idea. It's a belief that we're right. And as a result of that, we only seek information that confirms that our idea is right, and we ignore or discredit anything that disconfirms it. And what that means is that we ignore a large variety of better potential solutions. Uh, another pitfall that we often fall prey to is that uh, we are biased by the tools and the frameworks that we use to solve problems. So as I mentioned in business schools, we're great at helping people uh, use particular tools. So for in marketing, you've got the five P's and strategy. You've got what we call five forces in finance. You've got net present value. These are all tools and frameworks to help you make decisions. But what we know is that we're often blinded by the frameworks. In other words, the frameworks that we use distort how we come to understand problems. And, and most of us have a limited number of frameworks. And as a result, we see a problem in a very specific way, which means we miss a lot of opportunities for potentially better solutions. And, and another pitfall that we fall prey to, and this is sort of at the end of the problem-solving process, is that at some point when we come up with a solution, we've got to get other people on board. We've got to create buy-in, either inside or outside the organization. We, we call that selling. You've got to sell your, your solution. And what often happens, especially with, I would say, young and experienced problem solvers, is, is they want to tell you the story of how they got to the solution rather than the story of why you, as a stakeholder, should buy into or adopt the solution. So we, we are the pitfalls that we face in terms of how we define problems, how we quickly jump to a solution, how the frameworks that we use blind us to alternative solutions, and we don't uh, do a particularly good job of selling them. And these were largely the reasons why we wrote the book, because what it tells us is that as human beings, problem solving doesn't come naturally. It's not like learning how to walk. You don't just learn it as you get older, and you don't just get better at it as you get older. You've you got to work at it. And, and like any skill, because problem solving is a skill, it can be learned. So what we present in the book is, is a methodology and a set of tools that guide people on how to solve complex organizational problems. You know, the part that you're talking about, these biases, this is probably the biggest thing that prevents us from growing, from innovation, from problem solving. I was listening to you, and I was thinking of Blockbuster Video. Mm. And Blockbuster Video, because of their biases, meaning that they thought they were so big they couldn't fail, they were the best, they were the leaders in the marketplace, and they had a chance to do a partnership with Netflix, not once, not twice, but I believe three times. I had a, a chance to uh, uh, talk to the CEO, uh, and when they finally figured out that they were in trouble and that they needed to make some changes, was about five years after 
those failed meetings with Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, and he talked about the biases. He, you know, the, the consensus was is that they were, that Netflix uh, was going to be, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, servicing a different market mm-hmm. that uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the, that Blockbuster again was, you know, was too embedded and they weren't going to be disrupted by this weird idea of mailing in DVDs mm-hmm. that nobody was going to go for that. And if it wasn't for those biases, they probably would have taken different action. Yeah, I mean, Blockbuster is a great story, you know, and you mentioned it. It was, you know, the first iteration of Netflix was you rent the DVD online, you get it delivered to you through the U.S. Postal Service. And then that became direct-to-consumer streaming. And in both of those evolutions of their business model, you know, Blockbuster basically said, we don't believe either of these are a threat. They, they largely ignored them, as you just suggested, until it was too late. And, yeah. and what that tells us is that human beings, we, we make sense of the world around us, such as a competitor with a new business model through the lens of our past experience. So Blockbuster brick-and-mortar stores, thousands of them around the country, largely successful. When you look at that experience and then you make sense of this upstart Netflix that's trying to use the U.S. Postal Service, the temptation is to say they're not going to succeed. They're not a threat. And, and to your point, they did this twice. So, yeah, we, we often are blinded by our past successes, and we often make sense of the world through – the existing business models that we have, which often lead us to ignore com- competitors, threats like Netflix. So it's, it's a great story about how a, a once great company was made low by an upstart. It's a story that gets repeated in industry after industry. And again, it's part of that, why that happens is the biases that we have as human beings. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's not just you know, Blockbuster, I think, is a great example of, of not being aware of your marketplace and not seeing the future. Uh, and, and as you know, as we both said, uh, not taking your competition seriously. Kodak, a lot of people don't know this. You probably do. But Kodak, at one point, owned all of the patents for digital photography, all of them. But because they were a film company, they did nothing with them. Until again, it was too late. It, it just amazes me how, it, you know, uh, the, how our biases, our our willingness to stay, I guess, in a you know, to, to feel in control, to feel as though everything is is all right, is such a massive killer. Yeah. Yeah. No. And the Kodak story also is a great example of that as well. And and you said it, Kodak. People inside Kodak define themselves as a film company. So when you look at digital imaging, you say, well, there's no film. And as a result of that, you might be tempted to say, look, we're a film company. Digital imaging is not film, so we're going to reject the idea. We're not going to commercialize it, even though, to your point, we invented the digital camera and we had many, if not most, of the early patents on that technology. Again, it goes to my point that, that human beings, we make sense of the world around us in a distorted way through, through our past experience, our past successes. 
And what that means is we need a disciplined, structured way to solve these complex problems because left to our own nature, we're going to be biased. We're going to distort reality. We're going to skip over defining the problem well. We're going to zero in on a solution really quickly and ignore lots of other potential solutions. The way out of this trap, the way out of this pitfalls is to have some structure, some discipline imposed on us. And that's where a method becomes really valuable, and that's what we describe in the book. We present a method for solving complex problems to try to overcome these biases and pitfalls. Sure, sure. And, and, I, and I agree with that. There's always, always a place for discipline and process. And again, uh, you have to give a little flexibility to innovation and, and stuff like that. Uh, just let me let me do this real quick, sure. uh, Corey. And that is just to mention the book again is Cracked It: How to Solve Big Problems and Sell Solutions Like Top Strategy Consultants. You can go to crack-it-book.com to get the book. I'm also going to put uh, a link. It's available on Amazon as well. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You guys can go to either one and grab the book. Let me go back and ask you this: When in the book, uh, you you talk about your four-step method that people can use to solve difficult problems. Can you walk us through those uh, those four steps real quick? Yeah. So the four steps we call the 4S method because each step begins with the letter S. We're looking for an acronym that people can remember. So we chose 4S. The first is state, which means state the problem. Uh, in other words, define the problem well. We provide a framework in the book for how to define any complex problem. The second step is structure the problem. So once you've defined the problem well and you know what success is going to look like in terms of solving the problem, then you need to decompose the problem into much more manageable pieces that you can then evaluate. That's the solve part. And then finally, once you come up with a solution, you're going to have to convince other people, other stakeholders to adopt it. So we call that selling. So again, each of those steps has a set of tools that help you state the problem better, structure the problem more effectively, evaluate those potential solutions, and then identify the best solution, and then effectively and compellingly sell the solution at the end of it. And I'm happy to elaborate on any of those steps if you like. Sure, sure. So I want to talk about, you know, obviously, the, and you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, it seems like stating the problem is probably the, the easiest one to do. Hey, the problem is we're not growing, right? The, the company's not growing. That's the biggest problem we have. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you go through the structure, or as you, you also said, to kind of decompose the, the, the problem. And again, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you're going you're gonna to sit there and figure out, okay, why are we not growing? What is impeding our growth? Where are we, you know, maybe losing money or, you know, is, is, that, is that what you're talking about? You're going to break down that structure? Yeah. Well, let, let's go back to the first point that, that you think that uh, stating is the easiest. You, you okay. would think that. I mean, I think people, most people would be tempted to think that. But in fact, what we find both in research and our own consulting work is that that's a really difficult step. And more problematic is that we often skip over that step. We think it's obvious what the problem is, so we don't spend any time coming up with a well-defined problem statement. We just jump over that and we immediately go into, let's search for solutions. 
So I'm going to come back to you had at the top of your show uh, quotes or, or one particular quote. One of my favorite quotes about stating a problem well comes from Einstein. And he said, look, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes defining it and the last five minutes actually trying to solve it. For Einstein, mm. you have to invest effort up front to really define the problem well. And it's human nature to want to skip over that step. And as a result, we have a very poor definition of the problem. And that often leads us to developing very poor or ineffective solutions. So in the book, we provide a structured way to do this that is inspired by, of all things, an Italian opera called Tosca. So we use Tosca as an acronym for stating problems. So the T in Tosca is trouble. What is the trouble? In other words, what tells you that you have a problem? So you mentioned growth. Trouble is often in the following way. So we have a desired state. In this case, we had an expected rate of growth. And then we have the actual rate of growth. And usually a problem is, is when your actual rate of growth is lower than what you expected. So that would right. be an indicator of trouble. But, but what T says is let's get all the things that suggest that we have a problem down on paper. Let's identify all the indicators that we have a problem. And then let's move to the O. Who owns this problem? Who's going to be held accountable for the solution? Then the S part. What does success look like? And in what time horizon? In other words, how do you know and when do you know if you've solved this problem effectively or not? A lot of problem-solving groups, again, skip over that step. The C in Tosca stands for constraints. What are those hard constraints that you absolutely must abide by in solving this problem? Often those constraints are resources, could be time, could be money, could be people. They could be legal constraints. They could be regulatory constraints. They could be cultural constraints. You know, they're cultural taboos, things that, that inform the solutions that you end up coming up with. And then the final one is, is A, actors. In other words, who are the stakeholders that are going to be interested in your problem-solving process and affected by the solution? Because what we're really trying to do is we're trying to distill that Tosca, those Tosca elements, down into a core question that's going to motivate our search for solutions. So just that framework, the Tosca framework, encourages us to step back and spend some time defining the problem before we immediately go into idea generation mode and talking about potential solutions. So it's not a sexy part of the problem-solving process, but it's a really important one that is often skipped over. Yeah, and, and I, what I like, what you just demonstrated there, great quote there from Einstein. And I think, again, you have somebody like myself who is not a trained problem solver. And so I'm thinking, hey, stating the problem is going to be the easiest thing. Well, listening to you, I realized, well, yeah, again, that's, that's uh, one of those biases we're talking about. Oh, this is going to be so simple. We know what the problem is. Do we really? And, and, yeah. and, if, and if we don't do the work to truly understand what the problem is, then the solution, we might miss the solution completely. We may come up with a solution that doesn't solve the actual problem. Yeah. And, and this is import, particularly important when we're talking about groups because usually complex problems in organizations, they're not solved by a single person. They're solved by a group of people. And it's even more important to spend time defining what the problem is when you're in a group because it's very easy for different group members 
to come to understand the problem differently. So there's no alignment whatsoever. And then what happens is we divide and conquer. We delegate individual group members to take on particular problem-solving processes. And what that means is that we all got a different understanding of what the problem is. So we all have a different insight into what we think the solution is. And then when we come back together as a group, we realize that we're nowhere. We've wasted a, a bunch of time, a bunch of energy on solutions that don't really map to what the problem is. Why? We never spent any time as a group trying to define and get alignment on the definition of the problem. So it's, it's really important in, in a group setting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think you're right. I mean, look, when you look at, you know, we talked about block, Blockbuster. Blockbuster did not make their decision not to take Netflix or, or the changing, you know, or, or to look at the market. Uh, that decision didn't come from one person. That was a consensus. There was a group of people who all agreed that not doing anything was the right move. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're not going to solve the problem by yourself. And most likely the problem wasn't created by one person. Uh, and, and so I like that. I, I want to talk about this. Um, let me see. In the book, you talk about the dark side of reasoning by analogy. Yes. And, and so I want to talk about this because this is something that, you know, again, that we all kind of do uh, as human beings. So, so talk about this dark side of reasoning by analogy. Sure. I, I think to talk about the dark side, we need to first talk about the, the bright side of reasoning by analogy. And reasoning by analogy is one of the things that makes us human beings, and it's one of the things that allows human beings to operate in entirely new situations. What it, reasoning by analogy says is when faced with a new situation that I've never seen before, what I can do is I can reach back in my memory and ask myself a really basic question. Have I seen a situation like this that's similar in the past? And if I have, I can say, well, what worked in that past situation? If it worked there, then it's going to work here. So it gives me the ability to make sense of a very novel situation. Now, we do that when we solve problems, right? We look at a problem, and one of the first things we often ask ourselves is, have I seen a problem like this before? So if it's a growth problem, my, my top-line revenue growth is slowing, um, and it's gotten to the point where I think that I need to do something about it. So I might be tempted to say, well, have I faced a revenue growth problem before, or somebody else on my team have done that? Well, how do we fix it back then? And then let's merely assume that that solution will work in this case. That's the downside or the dark side of reasoning by analogy. We will often force a past problem that we faced before to look like a current situation because we're desperate for a solution. So we simply assume that what worked in the past will work in this current situation. And we often get it wrong. And in the book, we tell a story, a somewhat tragic story, about Ron Johnson, who, when he went to work for Penny, J.C. Penny, to try to resurrect the that once great American department store chain, he largely approached this through reasoning by analogy. Now, Johnson had basically spent his prior career at both Target in the United States, and he was the creator of the Apple Store. And if you looked at the solution that he implemented when he became CEO of JCPenney, it largely looked like elements of the solution that worked for him at Target and it worked for him at the Apple Store. And he simply assumed that it would work for him at JCPenney. 
Now, the reason we know he assumed is because he never bothered to test these solutions, the elements of mm. these solutions. Now, the solution involved completely changing the merchandising approach, going from functional organizational merchandise like men's suits and women's dresses to his idea of 100 boutiques in a store, to eliminating price discounts and moving to an everyday low pricing strategy, to dropping the JCPenney brand name and instead using JCP, coming up with a new logo, and then outfitting store personnel with handheld computers to check out people on the retail floor. So a lot of these elements he drew from his past experience at Target and at Apple Store, and he never bothered to test them at JCPenney. In fact, he was so confident it would work, he rolled these changes out across all 1,100 or so JCPenney stores over the course of about a year, and it failed miserably. The reason it failed miserably was because JCPenney customers were not like Apple customers and Target customers. He merely assumed they were. So again, that's the downside of reasoning by analogy. We can say, oh, this problem I'm facing in this new retailer, JCPenney, looks an awful lot like what I faced at Apple in creating the Apple stores and at Target in terms of transforming Target. So whatever worked there, I'm merely going to assume that it's going to work in this new situation. So it was reasoning by analogy meeting the confirmation bias, which is I've got a solution. No one is going to move me off this solution because I believe wholeheartedly it's the right solution married to a bit of overconfidence. In other words, if I'm super confident this solution works, why would I waste any time doing a pilot project and testing it at one or two stores? Why don't I just roll it out across all 1,100 stores? So again, you have a mixture of different biases, the reasoning by analogy bias, the confirmation bias, and the overconfidence bias brought to life by Ron Johnson, who was extremely successful in his career in retailing, but when it came to JCPenney, he failed miserably, largely because of he fell prey to the same traps that most human beings fall prey to. Yeah. And again, what I think it's a great example. I mean, it seems to me that if you have a big problem, you almost need an outside person to maybe uh, double check your um, solution, right? I mean, first of all, how crazy for somebody to say, hey, this has worked before. I'm not going to even test it. Let's just rule it out to 1,100 stores. That is pretty, that's pretty ballsy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and, that's and, the right word for it. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, uh yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, I'm sure that the board said, yeah, that makes sense, you know, and they said, yeah, let's do it or whatever. Maybe they, he didn't even have to check with the board. But, you know, I'm kind of reminded of this movie with Brad Pitt. I talk about it uh, fairly regularly just for this one thing. And I don't know if you ever saw this movie. It's called World War Z. Yes, I did. Okay, so World War Z has the 10th man. You know, and so this is, the, this is the part in the movie where he's in Israel, and Israel is the only city in the world that has walls and, for the most part, is, is pretty safe at the moment, right? And, mm -hmm. and he asked the guy, 
you know, we, everybody, all the, you know, all the world got the same email. Why did you, why did you guys start building walls when nobody else did anything? And he, and he says, he talks about his 10th man theory, which is if the consensus is this can't happen, the 10th man, his job is to do the opposite and pretend that it could happen. What do you do? And so he happened to be the 10th man in the room that day, and he elected to build walls. And sure enough, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it saved the city uh, for, for, for a time there. But, but bottom line is, it seems like because of all the biases that we have, Corey, that, that you really need a, a, a pair of fresh eyes. Maybe you don't need an outside consultant, but maybe you need somebody from a different department, or something to give you a fresh look. What's your thought on that? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, what matters in these situations is diversity of perspective. Now, the the idea of the 10th man comes from let's designate somebody who has a role to be the contrarian, to, to be the diverse perspective. So we can create roles. Sometimes we call them devil's advocates. Sometimes we call them contrarians that actually create diversity of perspective. We can hire outsiders to get diversity of perspective. This is largely why we have strategy consulting firms. Yes, they bring a lot of intellectual horsepower, but to your point, they often look at these problems differently from the people inside the client organization. So if you're going to have um, well-defined problem statements, you need people that look at the problem from very different perspectives could be from different departments. It could be from different uh, expertise domains, so finance, operations, HR, and so on. You need that diversity perspective. You also need diversity in the other elements of the problem-solving process. Structuring the problem, which is essentially decomposing it into potential solutions. That's where diversity is also relevant there as well, because the more the diverse perspective, diverse backgrounds, people are going to bring different frameworks, different theories, different concepts to structure the problem. So it gives you a much wider possibility in terms of solutions. And then solving the problem, you need diversity because you need people that have diverse expertise in terms of collecting data, running analysis, and so on. So you're absolutely right to having diverse perspective, but I think to link this back to the Ron Johnson story, you, you also need to have people that are willing to listen to the diversity of perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think this was one of the things that contributed to the poor solution at JCPenney was that Johnson quickly zeroed in on what he believed was the right solution and largely resisted people questioning the value of his solution. In other words, rejecting people's diverse opinions. You know, it's it's one thing to say we're going to have a team and everybody's equal in terms of their say on the team, so all perspectives matter. It's another thing to have the CEO driving this whole agenda and then having the power and the status to be able to reject that diversity of perspective. So this is where, and, and you said it, this is where a board of directors is supposed to be overseeing this. And, and for me, what was going on with the board of directors during the Ron Johnson era at JCPenney is a big question mark. Did they really create the environment internally to have different voices listened to? I don't think so. And it led to a very bad outcome for them. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. 
Again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the book is Cracked It, How to Solve Big Problems and Sell Solutions Like Top Strategy Consultants. Corey Phelps, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thoroughly enjoyed our time. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. You bet. Good stuff there from best-selling author Corey Phelps. The book, again, is Cracked It, How to Solve Big Problems and Sell Solutions Like Top Strategy Consultants, available at cracked-it-book.com, or you can go to amazon.com. Either way, both links are going to be in the show notes. Great stuff from Corey Phelps. The biggest takeaway for me was this biases that we all bring to the table. Uh, and then the second one was, again, part of our biases is our ego. And so you have somebody like a Ron Johnson, whose ego was too big to maybe uh, take advice from diverse ideas or uh, diverse people, test out his theory. Uh, no matter what, if you have 1,100 stores, I think testing your theory out on five or 10 of them might be a better solution than just rolling something out. Either way, great book, Cracked It, How to Solve Big Problems, Sell Solutions Like a Top Strategy Consultant, available at Amazon or wherever good books are sold. Ladies and gentlemen, let's share this episode with everyone we know. Let's help as many people as possible solve big problems within the organization. And as always, my friends, remember you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.